Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. The Athletic. Hello, thanks for joining us this week on the Zonal Marking Podcast. It's a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell and I'm joined by two athletic writers today. Michael Cox joins me. Hello, Michael. How are you this week? Very well, thank you. How are you, Ali? I am fine. I'm enjoying some slightly improved weather and looking forward to plenty of Champions League action this week, as always. But we're missing Tom Warville this week, which ordinarily might be a, a problem, might be a concern, Michael. But instead, we've drafted in a special guest, a debutant, and I'm not sure if this is going to go down well or not, but I'm calling it a like-for-like substitution. <laughs> well, yeah, we've got two analytics writers now with The Athletic. We have Tom, and we also had, uh, we also have Mark Carey, who joined uh, a couple of months ago, I think I'm right in saying, and is doing some, some similar things to Tom um, and some great graphics and visualisations. And uh, Mark's done a couple of uh, really good articles about goalkeepers in the last couple of weeks, one on uh, Cash Schmeichel and one at Guaita at Crystal Palace. And so we thought that I'd make a good podcast, How You Measure Goalkeepers Statistically. Mark, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Zonal Marking Pod. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's quite a surreal moment for me. It's kind of one of those where it's long-time listener, first-time caller, because I've been <laughs> listening to the podcast for so long that um, it is quite surreal to, to be on. I, I don't think that it is a like-for-like substitution. If we're going to get that in early doors, I'll still let Tom take the mantle of, of being the master um, but now I'm happy to, to be in a supporting role, if nothing else. Well, we'll be the judge of that. We're grateful for you uh, joining us this week because I think analysing goalkeepers using data or not using data is sometimes a bit of a blind spot for mainstream football analysis and even for fan analysis itself. Just before we get into it, Mark, you, you already do a, a an excellent uh, analytics focused podcast tell me a little bit about that before we before we get involved just so we know your uh, your qualifications here <laughs> yeah again i'll have to caveat myself again but uh yeah no i, I do a podcast uh, with my good friend ryan bailey it's called the football fanalytics podcast and it's essentially trying to sort of have a bit of a commentary on this growing world of of football analytics and and rather than kind of just 
cast people aside and just focus on those who have an understanding of analytics. We're trying to introduce more and more terms to people who don't have as much of a, of a knowledge of it, but want to know a little bit more. Um, so we kind of just explore the world of analytics together. And um, yeah, my friend Ryan doesn't didn't know too much about it. So together we can kind of yeah, explore hmm. it, have a bit of fun along the way. Um, and yeah, we encourage all, all people to have a listen to it if they haven't already. The Football Fanalytics podcast, at Fanalytics pod on Twitter. Of course, Mark is, as every athletic writer seems to be, very busy on site as well, contributing to articles pretty much daily, as far as I can tell, being, being worked very hard just a few months into your athletic career. Um, but yeah, as I say, I think goalkeeping analysis was overdue on this podcast. Um, Michael and I are more or less going to bow down to your knowledge here. We just really want to ask about certain metrics, both publicly available and maybe some that aren't, that relate to goalkeeping, and just try and explain the ways that data can help measure goalkeeper performance, but equally where they can be quite misleading as well. And with that in mind, Mark, I'm pretty confident by now that most people, certainly the listeners of the pod, will know that looking at clean sheet numbers maybe is not the best measurement for how good a goalkeeper is or how well they've performed. But is it also fair to say that we've moved away from even something like save percentage just to measure the quality of a goalkeeper? Yeah, yeah, I absolutely think so. I think that there's there's a lot more advanced metrics out there now um, when looking at goalkeepers. I mean, save percentage, for, for the reasons that many people will know, can be quite a flawed way to, to assess keepers because it doesn't account for... Well, there's a few things it doesn't account for. One is the the number of shots that a keeper has faced. So you could have two keepers who have got 100% save percentage and one's faced 10 shots, another's faced 100 shots. And it's just incomparable of, you know, separating the good from the great goalkeepers there. Um, so that's one. Um, but it also doesn't account for the the difficulty of, of that shot face. So one keeper could get loads of shots right down the middle of the goal, straight at them, down the keeper's throat. Um, and another could get shots that are, you know, placed in the top corner or the bottom corner or um, far out of, out of their direction. So again, you can't really compare the, the save percentage considering the difficulty of the shots as well. So they're the two key ones, I think, that are flawed um, in looking at a save percentage and yeah it goes along with the the clean sheets idea of that in theory you could have a keeper who doesn't make a single save all game because the the defense is doing so well and they come over with a clean sheet so um yeah there's far more advanced methods that we can use to to assess goalkeeper performance it's interesting you say that i was having a look on fb ref earlier which has some fantastic um in-depth goalkeeping metrics and yeah mendy of chelsea has a lot to thank his defenders for. He is, I, I believe, the, <laughs> the, the most well-protected goalkeeper in terms of volume and quality of shot that he faces. And it leads us on to what FB Ref has available for, for anyone, for Europeans or for Europe's top five leagues. And that is expected goals on target, which is also known, confusingly, as post-shot XG. <laughs> which one of those two terms do you lean towards? <laughs> well, through through the the site and through the athletic, we use uh, expected goals on target, but they are they're very much the same thing um, in terms of it being an extension of the expected goals model. So, again, looking at the likelihood that a shot will result in um, in a goal between zero and one, of course. Um, but many people might not know that the the expected goals model is assessed based on the the chance before the shot is taken. So it measures the quality of the shot before a shot is taken. And the expected goals on target is a, an extension of that a statistical model. Um, and we use it through Opta 
um, rather than the FB ref is through StatsBomb. There's different data providers, of course. Um, and yeah, it builds on it to say, yeah, what the player did with those chances. So whether or not it did rifle into the top corner or went straight down the middle. Um, so essentially, yeah, expected goals on target is uh, a post-shot uh, model and it just builds on that traditional uh, XG model and it considers a whole host of things like the similar to the XG model typically where like the angle that um, the shot was taken from where it went within the goal mouth and uh, other factors like that to then look at adding on then what's the probability that uh, the shot will result in a goal that's interesting so it does quite crucially add that extra layer of context that isn't what most XG models use essentially upon impact of the strike itself, but actually bears into account the fact of where the ball went, therefore how difficult a save it was for the goalkeeper rather than how difficult a chance it was for the striker. Yeah, exactly. And you can look at it kind of two ways. You can look at it from the, the perspective of the striker, first and foremost. Obviously, we're going to speak about keepers today, but think of it from the striker of how much value they add from the chance that they have before the shot to the quality of the strike once they've had the shot. So the example that I like to use recently with friends is the the Harry Kane goal against Crystal Palace is going back a couple of weeks now. So before that shot was taken on towards the edge of the the right hand side of, of the box, that that chance, that XG was 0.03. So that's a three percent chance of that that opportunity going in the goal. Very low value chance. But given that he absolutely rifled it in the top left corner, that chance after the shot was taken, the expected goals on target value, jumped up to 0.54. So a lot better to, to essentially say that the quality of that strike is, is going to go in more than once every two times. So again, just to show that jump of that quality of the strike, then providing a bit more information of yeah whether it's going to likelihood to go in. It strikes me that, and this is moving away just very briefly from goalkeepers, but now that we're talking about post-shot XG or expected goals on target, if you prefer that name, is that one of the many aspects of the recent and ongoing debate about expected goals, about XG, the calculation of chance quality, is the, the old classic, well, doesn't account for the quality of the player taking the shot, Harry Kane being a, a pretty good example. So obviously FB ref has... Expect uh, post-shot XG numbers for on the goalkeeping part of their site, but would it not be quite helpful to know which players have a discrepancy between the XG value of the shot as they take it and where their shots are actually ultimately being placed? That feels to me like it would be a great thing to know which which players are essentially uh, turning average chances into better chances because of the quality of their finishing ability but I haven't really seen that out there so it may be that I'm missing something no no you're absolutely right to make the point I, I don't know whether it is on on FB ref as you say I think that's something that we that we use on the site um, or we have access to um, through through our uh, data provider with the athletic that you can actually determine that and then as you say it d does show and determine whether or not um, a, a player is adding value and as you say, the XG model looks at the average player. So if we can look at it over a long period. I know that from, from this pod, that the small sample size is a key thing that you guys say that over a long period in a, in a big sample size, you can see just how much a player is adding value to the chances that they that they have. And that would be at least a proxy because there's so many sort of other things you've got to take into consideration, but at least a proxy of how much value they are adding to the chances that they're having. And if they are consistently doing that over a number of seasons, then, then you can be pretty sure that they are going to be an above average 
striker of the ball, not necessarily a striker because you can have multiple positions, obviously, but um, a good finisher. Interesting. Okay, well, thank you for that little tangent. I'm also, <laughs> it, it strikes me, we do talk about small sample sizes a lot. Certainly Tom does on this podcast. I'm yet to meet a, a data guy who is, <laughs> is ever pleased with the sample size, Michael. Um, uh, f- from what we've just discussed with Mark, expected goals on target, aka post-shot XG, Coxie, we get a figure for a goalkeeper, which is essentially goals prevented. And in the same way that you might say Harry Kane has scored 15 goals from 10 expected goals and therefore has a certain overperformance, this is how we might use that to, to measure goalkeeper performance. Goals prevented, the difference between the expected goals on target that they've faced and the real goals that they've conceded. Um, how much stock do you therefore put into that relatively new, I guess, to be available for you when thinking about goalkeepers, analysing goalkeeper performance? Is that kind of your go-to now? It's certainly something I've only really seen in the last couple of years. And I mean, just going from from one of the articles Mark has written recently on about Kasper Schmeichel I'm looking at here, there's, there's quite a big variation across the league. I mean, at the moment, the top goalkeeper in terms of goals prevented has prevented six goals as Areola for Fulham at the other end of the scale. Uh, it's Guaita for Crystal Palace, who's supposedly conceded nine more than he should. I mean, it's interesting. I'd be interested to know really how much how much stock Mark puts in that. You know, is it um, is it a reliable indicator? Is it something that varies quite a lot between seasons? Can goalkeepers kind of get unlucky? And just another kind of side question, maybe going back to something we we discussed before, but how accurate is it? Is it how sorry? How accurate is it in terms of the positions that are, uh, are measured, if that makes sense. I mean, when someone is logging this on the actual goal mouth, uh, sorry, sorry, on the goal, a difference of 30 centimetres, 50 centimetres could be a huge difference between whether a goalkeeper should save it or not. So how basically how accurate is it and how much stock do you put in the stats? Yeah, okay, I'll take each one in turn um, there. But I think that with, with how much stock you put in it i think with with every analytics model there's always limitations of it and i think there's a few things that that a lot of the models don't consider um i think one is the the positioning of the goalkeeper so it might be that the the player rifles it into the bottom right hand corner but the keepers already anticipate that they're going to go there and they might make a really good save but they're already leaning that way so they're more likely to make the save than if they were maybe you know leaning to their right or left and i think that's something which is important to say you know at the top of this pod to say that it's it's very difficult to assess goalkeeper performance using data because there's so many intangibles that a keeper has to consider when in their performance so yeah like their positioning like their communication with the defenders their decision making um yeah their footwork and and all things like that so it doesn't consider all those things in the model but as i mentioned before it's a good proxy just to to show you know shot stopping ability to some extent um Another thing which some models consider, which others don't, is the velocity of the shot as well. So I think the one that we use looks at it in terms of low, medium and high velocity. But I think that that one that Ali, you mentioned through FB Ref considers it as quite objective speed. So the actual, it considers the whole velocity as a continuous measure to say whether it is, yeah, is it rifled into the top corner? Or is it kind of passed into the bottom corner? Whatever it may be. So considering all of those factors, again, I do place a high value in it in terms of its stock because it can be a useful proxy but yeah there's there's many things that you that you need to consider um 
in terms of yeah the the performance and the difference within a season and between seasons i guess like you think about finishing for a striker it's always going to fluctuate between uh, sorry within seasons um and looking at it again come back to it with a large sample size but over a longer period you can start to to get a clear idea and you mentioned about the Guaita piece that i think if you look at all of the his premier league seasons i think his goals prevented is somewhere in the region of zero so you look at him this season, he might be underperforming. Last season, he was potentially overperforming, but this is why it's always useful to look over a longer period that he's about where he should be and he's saving on average the shots that he should be and he's conceding the, on average the shots that he, that he should be as well. So always important to, to look over a longer period, as I mentioned. Keepers obviously face a, a lot of different types of shot. Uh, and I know that one of the benefits of, of data analysis is being able to put things in buckets is being able to, to sort things and hopefully therefore sort types of shot faced for goalkeepers no doubt some excel at saving shots from range for example and and perhaps some excel more at saving close range shots which might be even considered a more valuable skill uh, mark are there any interesting patterns to be found here yeah you're right in terms of putting it into buckets um with that so with long range it's yeah it's quantifying what we consider to be long range and i, I kind of made the executive decision here but feel free to correct me here but i put that as anything beyond 25 yards as considered to be long range um and yeah looked again at the goals prevented and how many goals were conceded and the two players who have conceded the most from long range this season in the premier league um with four goals apiece were jordan pickford at everton uh, and carl darlow at newcastle of course and it's, it's kind of interesting because pickford i feel like he gets a bit of a, a badge that he is quite poor from range i feel like everton it, it something to be said about the defence where the Everton's defenders are letting the players shoot from long range so they're not exactly helping him there um, and his goals, goals prevented actually from long range he's, he's slightly overperforming in terms of the goals prevented from long range but I think the fact that he has conceded four potentially just gives that that perception that he might be a little bit worse than he is and you look at the shots that he has actually faced I look back at them yesterday and a lot of them were rivaled into the corner I think there's the exception of the the Yuri Tillemans one where I think he spilled and didn't do very well with it at all that maybe then again skews the perception um so yeah from from long range it's uh Pickford and Darlow who have conceded the most in terms of the the players who have conceded the, the fewest from long range this season, Nick Pope uh, of Burnley and, and Robert Sanchez at Brighton are the, the only two who haven't conceded from long range so far this season. Um, Pope has faced a lot more from range, so he's he's doing well with the saves that he's making. Um, Sanchez, which again shows Brighton's style that they're not necessarily um, conceding too many shots from long range, but, but those two are the only keepers who haven't. Um, from long range and then from close range again feel free to to disagree I've gone here for shots that were within 12 yards so kind of within the area of the penalty spot uh, and forward um, and there's a standout keeper here and that's Alison Becker uh, at Liverpool he's he's prevented 4.5 goals um, more than he should which is comfortably higher than the rest so um, Alphonse uh, Ariola at Fulham have He's second on the list, um, conceding three goals more. So I guess, does that say something about Alisson's shot-sopping ability 1v1, potentially? If it's close to the area, maybe it's more likely that it'll be 1v1, one v one, or is it just that he's really good at reaction saves? That's something which we can't necessarily tell with the data, and that's where, of course, looking at the player and using video can obviously help a lot there. This is presumably important and helpful from a recruitment perspective, 
which is a, a, a really interesting use of data, of course, in, in modern football, because to the extent that some teams fluctuate their style from manager to manager, there are also teams who it's become clear over the last few years have a style of playing, both attacking and sometimes a defensive style that you can be fairly confident will be maintained over the long term. And therefore, if you're a team that is going to keep a low block, potentially bodies between the man with the ball and the goal as much as possible, I, I suppose Burnley off the top of my head would be a good example of that in the Premier League, then perhaps you might put a little more stock in someone who has a very good record at, at saving shots from long range. Whereas, you know, I, I think it's pretty much accepted in data analytics terms that a team that plays a really high line and an intense press, for example, like a Liverpool uh, in previous seasons. At the moment, my main reference point is a Barnsley in the championship whose press is unbelievably extreme at the moment, is that when done well, those teams don't tend to concede a high volume of shots, but often the XG per shot, the quality of the average chance they concede, is much higher than a team that, that puts a lot of bodies between the balls. So maybe in that sense, you would try and, and, and work out who's in the bucket of saves a lot of one-on-ones, saves a lot of, of high-quality chances. Do you think that that stacks up with how you might see this being used in recruitment terms? Yeah, I think that's a, a really interesting point. Now, that is something key to mention of the yeah the average, um, the XG per shot, the average quality of the shot that these teams are are conceding. And I think with with 1v1s, in, in some regard, the, the, it's it's more of a closed skill, I think, that a keeper can prepare for than they know it's, well, it's the, the terms there, the definitions in the term, it's a one versus one. Whereas if they are having a shot from distance, it might take a deflection. You're more likely to, well, maybe less likely to be able to see the ball at times. So it's a bit more difficult to maybe sort your footwork out those sorts of things so again it kind of comes back to many unquantifiables whereas I think 1v1s are a little bit more easy to prepare for so to speak in that there's only a finite number of options that a, a player can can yeah perform an action whereas maybe from distance it could kind of go anywhere it could be a pass it could be a um it could come off yeah someone's leg and and yeah wrong foot the the keeper so again it comes back to just that difficulty of trying to quantify goalkeeper's performance with data. And I do think, as I mentioned, it's probably one of the, the hardest positions to to quantify with data. There's, sure, you guys, and I know you have mentioned on the podcast before, the difficulty of measuring and quantifying defensive performances as well, because it's sometimes the absence of data that make a good defender. And it's similarly here with, with goalkeepers as well, that it can be, yeah, the absence of a save that they might be shepherding a, a striker away from goal and it actually doesn't get logged as anything in the data. So... Of course, always important to look at the, the live performance of the keeper and watch the video and not just look into the numbers. And I didn't think I'd say that as a data analyst. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Mark? Because uh, as well as pieces that you've written for The Athletic, there are some brilliant people out there on Twitter, uh, other social media platforms online who really do add a lot to the world of goalkeeper analysis and and specifically it springs to mind when when thinking about one-on-ones because there's someone in particular who's done a lot of really good work publicly on this as well yeah there's there's someone um called john harrison he's deserving of a, of a shout out and he's a goalkeeper analyst um and as you mentioned yeah he does some great public work and he's actually helped us with a with a couple of articles on the athletic as well he helped with um that gaita one and he, he yeah he's focused quite quite heavily on the the 1v1s and this is again where it's difficult to to look at in the data but he he showed a really nice visual representation of it of the different techniques and again that that decision making of the the goalkeepers and yeah some of the graphics that he did kind of just showed whether or not the the keeper is likely to or should be engaging with the with the striker or waiting for the the player to take that action first and basically staying on your line or coming out whether or not to to do one or the other and reacting to the shot or blocking or smothering the ball so again yeah really nice visual representation i'd encourage people to to follow john harrison really good goalkeeping analyst but it comes back down to that decision making and which which is most successful or not and again it's it's never one set way of of answering it as well that that decision making obviously depends on the the certain situation so what might be a really good decision for one shot might might not be for another so uh yeah he breaks it down really well so uh, definitely worth giving him a follow on twitter yeah i got a lot out of that uh twitter thread as well it's pinned to the top of his profile at jhd harrison one on twitter um a lot to do with the, the angle of the shot, the angle of the approach from the attacker, really, really interesting. If uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this pod, then that's certainly something to bookmark for later. Um, in your article about Guaita, you mentioned that he doesn't stack up that well when it comes to coming for crosses. And that's the first time I think we've mentioned crossing and how goalkeepers deal with crosses. I asked for some questions on the topic and thankfully some of our listeners came up trumps this morning. James on Twitter specifically wanted to know about this. So I'll, I'll, I'll sneak this in here. It says, Mark, why can no data provider provide an accurate assessment of GK performance from crosses? Seems to be wild discrepancies on what constitutes a cross, a stopped cross, or a goalkeeper exit slash leaving his line. What sources does Mark use to assess these sorts of questions? That is a good question. I, I would agree that there's, yeah, different data providers have 
different definitions and and there's an element of subjectivity in it in in terms of what's logged as a as a cross a stop cross and things like that and i think i suppose we are in in real terms we are in the infancy of data collection in in the grand scheme of things so i think over time that will become clearer uh, amongst data providers so that we all have a clearer definition and we can sort of work towards the same idea of what constitutes a certain action um, but in the meantime, yeah, we, we use Opta to, to look at it. Um, and yeah, with that greater article, I mean, yeah, with, yeah, I mean, again, it comes down to, of course, decision-making of, of knowing when to come for a cross as well. Cause sometimes the, again, the absence of coming for a cross might be that you leave it to your defenders and you don't interfere and you can actually let the, let the defenders actually deal with it. But yeah, I mean, teams are going to face hundreds of crosses over the, the course of a season and the, the keeper isn't going to obviously come for all. Um, um, so, yeah, I guess when, when you do come for a cross, you want to make sure that you deal with that cross. So whether that's catching the ball or punching it, however you, you may deal with it, you want to make sure that you deal with it productively. So the, the stats that, that we use um, can give a bit of an indication of just how successful the keepers are when they, when they actually do engage with the ball. Um, so you can break it down, I guess, yeah, into three outcomes. So whether the keeper claims the ball by catching it, whether they punch it away or whether they misplay it. So what we can do is look at the cross success percentage. So seeing how many times a keeper does successfully punch it or claim it, which is obviously the positive outcomes um, as a proportion of all the crosses that they went for. So it's it's smaller numbers because of course, as I say, there's hundreds of crosses that they face and they, they don't come for all of them. But looking at this season, David De Gea and Edison have a 100% cross success rate. So again, it probably comes down to as much as anything, their decision-making, knowing that when they do come for it, they uh, they make the right call. And uh, at the other end, uh, Aaron Ramsdale, um, just to add to Sheffield United's misery, sorry, uh, has the lowest cross success uh, percentage with um, 79%. And interestingly, Bernd Leno um, is actually quite down near the bottom as well uh, for Arsenal. So just again, Again, gives a, a flavour of just of yeah the crosses that they do come for. Do they make the right call and, and what do they do with it? Stick it in the mixer against Arsenal and Sheffield United. <laughs> That's what I've got from that. Um, and let's talk about another big, big question when it comes to analysing goalkeepers, and that is distribution. Uh, this is a big one. And, and James again on Twitter asking a, a, a better question than I would have come up with myself. Um, what metrics does Mark use to assess? goalkeeper distribution a lot of publicly available metrics brackets aside from the top five league stuff on fb ref only seem to give you a sense of team style of play or essentially how good the center forward is at winning aerial duels yeah i again i i'd agree that there is there are limitations here and i suppose it's it's difficult to look at the success of the the distribution as much as just kind of style um, of the of the player so very much what with with james sort of said there so yeah, pass completion can be useful, but I mean, if you're booting it 40 yards every time, then you're not really likely to uh, to find the man all that often. So yeah, aside from from pass completion, you can look at just, yeah, what what the keepers choose to to do with with the ball when they have it. And again, yeah, we can use the, the stats bomb data from, from FBREF to look at the, the different passing types. So what we can look at is, is how many times the keeper launched the ball. Um, which I quite like just as a term anyway, because it is still quite like a playground term of just, yeah, he's absolutely launched it, which basically is, is quantified as um, how many times um, it goes 40 yards or more. So a long ball, so to speak. And the the keeper who plays the most launched passes um, is Nick Pope at Burnley. So 75% of his passes go long. 
um, which is quite, it's quite something. Um, and the least likely would be um, Bernd Leno, uh, Allison, and Edison, uh, uh, Arsenal, Liverpool, and City, respectively, between 20 to 25% of the time. So, I mean, you can certainly see it, and it passes the eye test, doesn't it, in the way that they play. And Arsenal and it, have with, got caught out recently, but. Within that group of three, if they're all in a similar bucket, if you will, in terms of the percentage of passes they're playing short or long. Is there any is there any way we can look deeper and judge those three on how well they complete those those short passes? Because as we know, that the the risk is large, the reward is also pretty substantial. So is there is there any way that we can dig a little deeper and work out that between Leno, Allison, Edison who's performing best at this short passing style? Yeah, I guess one way that we could look at it in terms of their success is how many passes, in terms of the location of the passes, how many passes remain in the defensive third when they've made them. So again, just trying to quantify what we consider to be um, those sorts of shorter passes. Um, So passes that still end in the defending third. Bernd Leno is actually um, top of the pops. He's got 99% success in the passes that remain in the, the defensive third. Um, but there's so, there's so little to, to choose between them. Allison's at 98% success. Um, Edison's at just shy of 98% success. So you're talking like paper thin difference between them. You're, so You're, they're you're all- basically talking what Alisson did against Manchester City a few weeks ago. That's, yeah, with that, uh, fine margins, one, aren't they? Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Coxie, it's been an elephant in the room of this podcast for, for the last year or so. We've been sort of quietly trying to work out if we can decide between us who England should have in goal in the European Championships. I remember when we spoke to Paddy, who covers Everton, we spoke about Pickford. I remember when we spoke to Andy, who covers Burnley, we talked about Pope. We've talked uh, at times about Ramsdale, whose performance this season puts him kind of pretty solidly out of contention, I think. But this is like the elephant in the room of this whole pod for me, Coxie. What what are the main questions you still have? What are the opinions that you have on Pickford versus Pope in net for England? Yeah, and there's also Dean Henderson who's come into the equation as well, who of course had a great season last time out for, for Sheffield United um, and is now finally, after waiting in the wings for most of the season, getting a run in goal for Manchester United as well. So I think we've ended up in a situation where there's almost three goalkeepers who have an equal claim to be the England number one, which probably isn't what you want, is it? You probably want a solid number one. What I'd be interested to ask Mark is about Nick Pope, really. I mean... Last summer, I know that Chelsea were interested in signing Nick Pope before they went for Mendy. I think it was Lampard, really, who was interested in Pope. And I expect if he'd gone to Chelsea, he would have got used to playing in a side with a more patient build-up. He would have passed on the back. We don't really know how good he is at that. He might be excellent at it, but he just doesn't get a chance to show it week in, week out for Burnley. Is there any possible way for Southgate to use statistics to work out whether Pope can play from the back or is it a case of he just hasn't been tested in that respect yeah again it kind of comes back to the small sample size that he's he's not really had that opportunity and with all keepers I suppose looking at their performance and any player really that they're all a product of the team style that all of their stats have to be considered within the the context of of the team and uh, the, the other players around them but yeah, I mean, in terms of Pope, yeah, playing it short, yeah, we, we don't know that that much exactly. As you say, 75% of the, the launch passes um, tell that story in itself. But um, kind of going back to that, how many passes that he makes that remain in the defensive third, he 
he attempts the fewest in the league in terms of those uh, those passes just just over three per game in terms of those sorts of short passes and I guess the good news is that when he does play it short his success is around 96 percent so that's good although the league average is 97 percent so you could argue that it's again we're talking paper thin differences but slightly below average but very much up there um so his his abilities you know just as good but it's again is it a product of of the players around him if he's passing it to the likes of ben me does he and james tarkovsky does he trust them to retain it and to to play it out to to the fullbacks and things like that whereas you know if he were to play for chelsea and of course england and he'd be playing with a lot higher quality players around him where you know he might have the ability but he's also got the trust um, in the other players that he's passing it to so as you say yeah we, we just don't know at the moment but when he does do it he he does it with success and just to compare him and contrast him with Pickford um, Pickford in comparison is 97% in terms of his pass completion that, that remains the defensive third um, but he attempts a lot more of course for Everton just over 12 per game so four times more than than Pope on average so you can see that yeah Pickford's capable and he also does it a little bit more frequently so he's more adept at being able to do that when when thinking about it from a from an England perspective. Has anyone ever attempted to measure the trade-off if you like between being a good shot stopper and not great with your feet and being really good with your feet but not particularly good with the ball because it feels like there's enough measurements there that it would be possible in theory to work out well if the goalkeeper's distri- you know distribution isn't that good but he's still saving shots I mean to, to use an extreme example if a peak Andrea Pirlo was to play in goal you know <laughs> for Juventus let's say and he wasn't sha- he wasn't saving many shots but he was the best playmaker in the world at the back uh, I mean how good yeah I'm not sure whether you'll be able to answer this question Mark, but how good a goalkeeper would Pirlo have to get to be <laughs> before it was worthwhile playing him in goal. Yeah, that's a difficult one to to answer. And I don't know whether there has been any kind of work on that that's that's looked at that trade-off. But I did see a really good video recently. I don't know if you saw it. It was from Pep Guardiola and it was it was in Spanish, but there was obviously English subtitles. And he, he basically said that he thinks that the the next football kind of evolution will appear when the keeper gets involved in the offensive play. So of course we have keepers now kind of working in a sweeper sort of role and they are the first line of defence, of course, but they they play a lot more with their feet. But he was speaking about it in terms of the the courage to actually go pretty much as far as the halfway line and create kind of numerical superiority in far more advanced positions, which of course has the the downside of if you get caught out, then you can have a midfielder scoring from the halfway line and, and catching them out. But that bravery to to be able to do that more and essentially yeah, create an outfield player who can also, you know, save a couple of shots as well. So as you say, really flipping it on its head. Yeah, I think, whether I think or not we that call would... that the I think we call that the Tiago Motta approach, don't we? I'm pretty sure he's he seems to be the one that's <laughs> trademarked yeah. essentially putting the goalkeeper in the defensive line. Isn't that right, Michael? You, you kind of rolled your eyes there. You're not having it? <laughs> no, I think that was a slight misinterpretation. I can't work out whether you're winding me up or not, Ali. But yeah, you're, you're right in that uh, reference, yeah. It would, be, it would be remiss of me not to just pop my EFL hat on here and point out that uh, the MK Dons goalkeeper, Andrew Fisher, uh, has frequently been seen in possession in line with... Uh, some of his central defenders, often in in the right-hand channel in order to build up play. Uh, It would also be remiss of me not to mention that they have had some quite high-profile instances of errors passing out from the back, leading to opposition goals. But 
in in EFL terms, MK Dons are certainly one of the most interesting teams to look into uh, in terms of style of play using any uh, any data metrics because they Russell Martin, their manager, is always at pains to to tell us that they have more entries into the final third than anyone else in the league. But um, and and they have almost the fewest on the other end. But they are very much in the bottom half of the table. So they're a really interesting team to uh, if anyone's listening to this and wants a little project, then have a look into MK Dons. Let us know any findings. But I mean, Michael, I, I want to ask you if you have a your own opinion, basically, your your gut instinct. You obviously just asked Mark, you know, can we work out what the trade-off is? But England are a few months away from a major tournament. This question has not really been answered or, or, or seemingly p- properly addressed by Gareth Southgate, who might leave it till the last minute. What would you do right now? Would you prioritise the uh, perceived better shot-stopping ability of Pope because... You know, low margin competition football, a big goalkeeping mistake is, is hugely damaging because there are so few games to turn it around or or uh, Pickford's distribution ability to fit England style to, to, to break out in transition. I mean, where do you stand on this? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. And I really think um, Henderson's coming to the equation now because we know he's a great sh- uh, shot stopper from last season with Sheffield United. And some of his distribution, mainly actually with his throws, I think has been very notable, particularly that goal, uh, you know, for the goal Shaw scored away at Manchester City last weekend. I was actually interested to see the, the figures that Mark uh, supplied for the Casper Schmeichel article because it had Jordan Pickford as having about one goal prevented. Whereas I would have guessed that he'd be much lower on that list. It just strikes me that he's had quite a poor campaign, but apparently the statistics don't really tell the story. I mean, Pope is above him on that list with five goals prevented. Perhaps you have to bring into account maybe the fact he's faced more shots, but I suppose it can even out the other way in terms of he could have, you know, he could have conceded more. Um, I mean, if we're to trust those numbers, I would probably go for Pickford because I think his distribution is is proven to be better. Like we said, we, we don't really know about Pope. But that is interesting because the number's not what I expected. I would have guessed Pickford would have been four or five goals down, in which case at that point, I think I would have turned to Pope as, look, you can't afford to have someone like Pickford not saving shots. Um, so I think it's a, a difficult situation. I think Southgate tends to be loyal to uh, to the players that have played well for England. I think Pickford's generally done well for England, doesn't he? His club form has wavered a little bit, but I think his, his past performances for England, I mean, the, He'll probably get the nod. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. Um, I thought you were going to say Pope there, Michael. So there you go. You've uh, you've highlighted just how difficult a decision this will be um, for Southgate. And yeah, I don't know why I keep neglecting to mention Dean Henderson. So apologies. There's no there's no agenda here. It's just I've been so conditioned that it's Pickford versus Pope for about three years now that I forgot that the emergence of of Henderson adds a, another dynamic to it. Um, I, I think. Usually, usually you can't stop going on about goalkeepers who've made their name in the championship and have proven it at a higher level. I'm very surprised. Well, all three of them have played in League Two, so there you go. That, that that it's, true, like, it's like asking me to choose my favourite child, Michael. <laughs> uh, I, I imagine. Um, look, um, I just wanted to say before we go that on your question about um, Pirlo playing in goal, Michael, uh, I've got, I've, I've always, I've got Tom always in my brain because he's you know he's taught us so much on this podcast and you know one of his big things is always to um to to praise clubs who seem to 
um, act with sort of joined up thinking at board level and especially that sort of mid to long term vision which involves implementing a style of play and, and, and not really moving from it whether that you know what that style of play is it doesn't really matter but giving yourself the best chance by recruiting players that you know will, will fit that and I guess that's quite an important part of what you've just asked like if I know that my team is going to face because of the, of the way that we play and because of the you know what our talent level is in comparison to the level we're playing at maybe I'd want someone who is proven as a shot stopper and I would use the trade-off to worry less about their distribution but if you're I suppose if you're the very top clubs you can probably have the best of both worlds so I guess we take them out of the equation but if you're someone like Brighton who are a bottom half club but who 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 like to build from the back and question in their final third then maybe that's a different answer to that question because you know you you might back yourself to have pretty good defensive metrics uh, and maybe the, the more important thing is for your goal goalkeeper to be able to start attack so it's all about knowing yourself isn't it mark i imagine you and tom you know you, you like to share you like to share the, the love of clubs who are acting in the right way yeah i, I think that's a really good point i think that could there be a world where you do just rotate the keepers as and when for the certain game? And I know that keepers, you typically do want quite a settled position, but I'm just thinking of, you know, the likes of Manchester City. They've, I forget whether it's through circumstance or, or by choice, but I think they had Fernandinho and maybe Rodri at the back when they knew that they were going to have a lot of the ball and they wanted to create that sort of superiority of, of players' um, yeah, ability on the ball. So could there be a world where you do have essentially a, a keeper for certain games you know you're going to dominate the ball and then can basically play almost as a midfielder who knows mm. keepers for courses um well thank you mark thank you michael as well really enjoyed delving a little bit deeper into goalkeeper analysis where data can help us but understanding where it, it can uh, hinder us or, or not quite answer all the questions if you aren't a subscriber of the athletic but you'd like to read all of the stuff that mark and tom are churning out but also michael's work too and, and so much more we've got an offer for you theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking if you head there you'll be offered a, a subscription at just three pounds 99 per month for the first six months uh, so do give the athletic a go today and thank you so much for listening to this podcast i hope you've got plenty from it please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed and make sure you check out our back catalogue we've got 15 months worth of episodes now lots of good stuff in there if you're late to the party. We'll talk again next week. Thanks for listening to the Zonal Marking Podcast. The Athletic.